Looking for a real estate loan? Should you get a loan from a bank or a credit union? We got answers for you today. 10 years ago, Mark Ritter started Members First Federal Credit Union's business lending program to help credit unions work with small businesses, owners, and real estate investors. Welcome to The Truth About Real Estate. I'm your host, Matthew Ma. Excited to talk with you, Mark. Welcome to the show. Matthew, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Cool. I wanted to start talking to you about, first off, let's start talking about what is a credit union anyways, and how does that work with real estate loans? Sure. That That's one of the most misunderstood uh, pieces of my business, uh, because a lot of people drive past a credit union and they see an ATM, they have drive through lines, they uh, over 125 million people belong to credit unions in the United States, but they just don't understand what it is underneath. And the easiest way to think about a credit union is it's a not-for-profit financial cooperative. It doesn't have stockholders like a commercial bank would. It is run by a board of directors that's elected by the members and really, it's for the members by the members. So that structure allows them to be more people-focused as opposed to shareholder-focused, where you don't necessarily have that big picture. Now, they still have, they're still they're federally regulated, federally insured financial institutions, so they still have to do things in, in sound lending practice and good financials. Uh, you know, they can't give away everybody, everything, all their money to everybody who wants it and might not pay it back. So so they're they're federally regulated, but it's really a financial cooperative. Um, and, 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 and how that translates through to people with their experience is generally that they're very customer and member focused uh, in that you have the account there and they can work what's best for you and talk through the business as opposed to uh, being a little more, I hate to say a little more cutthroat and bottom line than the, the banks that you, you may talk to. Nice. So that's a good part of it too. Cause yeah, you're right. I think most people understand, uh, don't understand the difference between banks and credit unions. A lot of us drive by it. We don't know about it. We go, we don't go look into further how it works and you know, the people who know about it, know about it, but for the rest of us, you know, it's, it's something different, right? And we're not used to it. How does one even be a, become a part of the credit unions anyways? Sure. Good question. And that has changed a lot over the years. And I remember when my father was growing up, the factory that he worked in had a credit union. And he always said that was the place he went if he needed money and to get a loan. And back in those days, they were, I, I hate to call them corner of the factory, but there was a school teacher's credit union, a police officer's credit union, a firefighter's credit union. It seemed like every factory or employer group had their own credit union where it was really just for that people. And credit unions really have evolved and become much more diversified over the years. And I would tell your listeners, if they're driving home from work today or out and about and they're driving past a credit union, there's about a 95% chance they could go in and open an account. And you see credit unions that may serve a particular geography. Uh, there might be a credit union that says we serve greater Los Angeles in these particular counties, or they might be open to particular employer groups 
or associations that you can join to be part of the part of the cooperative. So they've real many years ago. It was you had to go to this particular credit union that you or your spouse worked for, but they've really broadened up, and, and you can apply for a loan and work towards a loan before you become a member. But ultimately yourself or whoever the entity is that owns property and wants a loan from a credit union, you'll have to become a member. Now that can be uh, as simple, most of them, maybe you have five to $20 that you have to open an account and you're a member of the cooperative. And, and But really you also, once you're in the door, you have access to all of their checking accounts and savings and uh, investment services and loans that you would have otherwise. Uh, so many people I talk to say, oh, I have a loan at a credit union because maybe they had a good auto loan rate. Well, where better to maybe get that relationship for your real estate loan than where you have a relationship where they know you have good credit and they've seen your loan payment history and they're really working to expand your relationship versus, you know, you know what it's like when you're that first, first time you meet with somebody and, and, and trying to get a loan from them is a little more difficult than maybe where you have that existing relationship. And I think one of the hardest parts for uh, consumers is that there's so many different options. Which one do I spend my time and effort to apply for, to learn about, and to figure out. Some people just go with what their lenders, what their recommendations from their friends, family, or a realtor says about which one they should go with. And then they just do that without you know, really researching a couple different options. Another thought process is that if I apply to more than one um, company that it's hurting my credit score. And there is a difference between soft pool and hard pools for you guys to understand. But talking about this, it, there's just so much to do, right? And as a consumer, you feel overwhelmed by the process because how many applications am I filling out just to get uh, information based on rates? For example, some people say, hey, I want to just call you and ask you, could you tell me, could I qualify based on this general scenario? And what kind of rates would you have for this general scenario? Some lenders say, well, I can't tell you until you fill application. And then it kind of defeats the purpose because now you're asking me to do all this work upfront without even having a general sense of what you guys charge because they don't tell you the open floor rate. And that hurts because like how much time do I need to do this application, right? I can't just copy and paste it to every single website company, right? They upload all my it, documents over. It, it almost reminds me of watching TV today. I have... Uh... 10 streaming services and 200 channels. And it feels like I have nothing to watch ever. There, yep. there, there's, there's so many options. There's no options. Exactly. Over, overload. And to, to give you some insight, that's why I really enjoy what we do is that MBFS is a, it, and, and credit unions have only been in the commercial space Real so maybe it started up twenty years ago, but really the last decade is, is when it's came upon came upon itself. So what the credit unions have done is instead of every individual lender forming their own shop, forming their own uh, originations team, forming their own back office, buying their own software, they form these companies through like us throughout the country where people can go to and have a conversation. We work, we're owned by 12 different credit unions and we work with about 85 credit unions all throughout the country. 
So we can help guide people to get them to that right fit uh, before and, and hopefully cut, cut out a lot of that pain points that you, that you do. Because so many people think lenders, just because somebody lends money, it's this homogenous industry where they're all the same. But the reality is everybody's different. You know, there's lenders that are looking for people with poor and marginal credit. There's lenders who only want to lend to the, for the top 1% of credits and the ones with no risk that, that, that will give you the money. Uh, and then there's people like us where we deal with a little bit of everything. Uh, we, we deal with maybe that first-time investor that wants to buy that first residential rental property up to you know, $20, $30 million relationships in the commercial industry. And, and that's where I, I really think exactly what you said is dead on. You need to research it and talk to a few lenders and interview them before you take those next steps to get a feel for, do they lend to people who are at my phase of the business? And do they lend to people to who where I'm going and want to be? Because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy. And there's nothing worse than getting a few weeks into a deal and somebody says, we can't do what you want, or we're changing the terms and the markets change. And then you have to start over or the deal falls apart. That That's reputation risk for you. So it's crucial to for people to get those references and talk through. And, and I hate, I'll, I'll, I'll pat myself on for the credit, pat myself for the credit union industry is that's where it's nice because a credit union is there for the members. So people have that trust a little bit more that we're going to be fair on rates, fair on terms and throughout the whole process so that you have a little bit more of a trust factor with your credit union. You know, nobody's out there on the streets protesting against their credit union for unfair practices and that they hate their credit union. It's more uh, it's more of a, a nice, uh, nice puppy relationship where people trust us. They like us and they, they continue to build off of that. Yeah. And I think a part of the two and, you know, like, I used to be a lender a couple uh, many years ago, and I really want to talk about, especially in today's market, and some things you brought up too. Like, we really want consumers to understand not all lenders are same. And I'll give you a couple of different examples, and you can tell me about it too. There's a difference between retail, wholesale, and correspondence loans. What does that mean for consumer? For example, let's say big banks they might charge you a higher rate, maybe because of one thing: they have to pay for the offices, the overhead, the marketing everything. There's a lot of expenses in there. How do they make that up back in the loans, right? So the loans could be, could be higher. You got, depending on what you're doing, the wholesaling wise, let's say you have a mortgage broker and they have a small shop or an online shop. They might not have all this overhead. They might be able to give you a better rate because of the reduced overhead. And it's the same program, right? And it could be the same bank. It's a different rate. You have to understand that there's options there for you. Another part of it could be that if you are a top 1%, you might have you know what they call private client benefits. And you could get a reduced rate even be because of you having additional assets such as 250K, 500K, a million sitting there in their stock portfolio or reserves. But you want to understand there's different options out there. And not all... 
brokers are the same rates. They might charge more because they're saying, for example, here's the cheapest rate for the product. Here's a, me because I just charge more because my work is better, whatever. And then here's retail. Those are the options within that. And you have credit unions as well. So it is tough, but it is part of a loan that you're buying one of the biggest assets in your life. Consider looking and understanding it. Not all realtors, investors understand there's different types of products out there. They might refer you to a friend, but you really want to look out for your interest for your family and see what would be the best option. It takes a little bit more time, but that's where the savings comes along, right? And the trust factor is major too. One of the things that is a real legitimate question to ask, how is my loan being funded? Because And it's such a simple question that people sometimes overlook it. And, and what I mean is just what you talk to. If you're talking to a broker who's just and sell it on the open market, well, that costs money. They're looking at it for a short term. Whereas in my space, credit unions for every dollar of deposits they get in, they're typically lending out 80 to 85 cents and they're not borrowing to because borrowing money and lending it back out is a very expensive proposition and it runs on very thin margins. So you have to make that. It is always cheapest and best to lend out your own money. And that's where what that credit union will lend out about 80, 85 cents of its own deposits with a very with a very low cost of funds. So that's where it can afford to give you a good rate. Uh, and, and I'll give you a good example. No loan, no loan a credit union can do uh, at a federal credit union can have a prepayment penalty, which is a huge advantage for real estate investors because many times, you want to cash out that property. You want to sell it. You want to hit the market at the right time and buy something else. Uh, or the market shifts the rates. You know, two years ago, we just went a, uh, a, a sharp downward rate. And we found many people who couldn't refinance because they didn't understand the lender that they were dealing with and the terms that they had on their loan. And it was going to be a very substantial penalty to uh, prepay that loan. So you have to understand that lender of yours on who they are, where they're getting their money, what does their balance sheet look like? And, 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 and as you said, that's a trust factor. Yeah, and a part of that too is when I talk to lenders now, I, as a sales, as a real estate agent and broker, I talk to lenders out there and I ask them all these different questions to really understand who I'm working with for the client benefit and see how they can work even then too i heard there's different terms of correspondence too like for example if you're if your bank or your mortgage broker does a lot of business with a bank or a, a lender that funds the loans they can get a better rate than someone else who just does a little amount too or even exceptions let's say you have a complicated loan because you own you're a small business owner or you're a real estate investor there's some lenders out there who can get better exceptions based on your your criteria because they're more experienced on it. They know how to package the loan so it qualifies and does everything needed while others might say, oh, that's a little bit of work. I don't want to do that. Move on to the next person or fail in the middle because they didn't know about that. So that's part of experience and trust and really knowing who you're working with and how they can help you based on your situation. 
Yeah, it's, you know, there, there's nothing more frustrating than a small business owner who, who somebody has a bunch of residential properties going and trying to get a traditional 30-year Fannie Freddie conforming loan. And sometimes the I'll, I'll say the mega shops, the volume shops, they're on, they, they go work on volume. They're going to lend in a box. They're going to find a lot of people in that box and they're just going to repeat it as much as they can. Where on the other end, your, your extreme smaller lenders sometimes struggle to, to make those changes because they don't have the flexibility or the capital to maybe hold that loan in-house. And, and that's where I, I really think sometimes the best options are those happy mediums where you can have a conversation with people. And, and particularly, look, as I said, if you're, if you're in the, the top 1% and have great credit, you can walk into any bank credit union and get those primo deals. But for many people, that's just not the case. And you have to have a conversation. It, 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 to me, it's a huge red flag if you can't have a conversation with your lender to discuss what they can do and discuss your particular, your particular situation. Yeah, I think you get sense that in terms of volume wise, like when they're buying a house in uh, the market and they say that, you know, oh, we're busy, we can't really sit down with you, talk you through your loan situation and explain everything. And even some lenders right now, some good lenders are actually doing pre, still still doing pre-underwritten approvals. And that pre-underwritten approval makes you feel more confident, especially in a competitive market like San Francisco Bay Area. Some lenders do only pre-approvals is just like, you know, just pretty much just really the base bare minimums to qualify. While some lenders let you do pre-underwriting where they're still underwriting all the details saying, you're pretty much good to go. All you need to do is find the property, get in contract, get your appraisal cleared, making it habitable and valuation, and then go go forward and close in 21 days. Uh, while other lenders take 30, 45 days. So there's a difference between that, between the rates and you know what's going on with the current market it is in today. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. It is such a rapidly changing market that you need people who can be responsive to your needs. Uh, and, and whether it's your primary residence or an investment property or a mixed use property, the market is fast and the market is constantly changing uh, in, in some different areas. And, and it's and it's still a this is still a hyper local business. Uh, whether you're in small town America, mega city, somewhere in between, it is still a hyper local business and you need people who can be responsive to you as it happens to get that deal done. Uh, because the, the sellers today, can, they have the leverage when it comes to the terms and conditions of, of the property and of the loan and of the down payments and, and, and who can do what. And to be stuck with a uh, lender who can't deliver, uh, that's, a, that's a tough situation. And uh, it, it, people, uh, people just need to be careful about it. Exactly. And let's talk about this too. Do you guys do um, FHA loans, VA loans, um, any hard money loans? So, so the credit unions stay out of the hard money business. Mm -hmm. You guys, yeah. Um, so they really because that's that's a tough and because credit union, we also tend to have a max interest rate of 18 percent set by federal law. So a lot of these hard money, short term loans uh, we, we stay out of. 
um, the credit union industry, and, and, and there's actually from, from my company, I'll deal with uh, about half our business is residential investment properties. And our sister company does, uh, credit unions do all the traditional FHA, VA loans, Fannie Mae conforming and, and uh, move, move to everything, uh, the USDA, everything on the traditional uh, third party support, third party loans. Okay, nice. And then you mentioned earlier too, for real estate investors and no prepayment penalties. So that's a benefit too, because, you know, like, for example, some banks might charge you a prepayment penalty like six months, a year. They might have a step down five, four, three, two, one. Uh, really depends. But for how does that work for credit unions with no prepayments? Yeah. So, and that's one of the benefits of we're lending off of our own money and, you know, and I'd like to think it's us being nice, but it's actually by federal statute that we can't charge a prepayment penalty to the borrowers. And, and what happens is it, it from our side, yeah, it, it stinks when rates drop suddenly and we have to refinance uh, a good portion of our portfolio. But credit unions are so strong financially with their equity positions that it really doesn't impact us all that much. And it's, and it's a really good benefit because you know, everybody, when you're buying that residential investment property, especially those first few ones, it's more about getting the loan and you don't understand the back end of these loans uh, where you have to maintain certain covenants. You have to maintain conditions. Many times you'll have to give people updated financials uh, on your investment property loans. So, uh, and, and as rates drop, you're, if, if you have a prepayment penalty, you're stuck with it uh, up until, uh, you know, typically maybe that four or five year period. And in the investment world, that, that's a long time. Uh, just because you may get into this property and realize I want to get out of it, or you want to upgrade, you want to sell a few of uh, a couple of your single family units and buy a, uh, a, a 10 unit property, you have that flexibility with us. So it, 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 it's, it's a great benefit to our borrowing base to, to keep that in a prepayment penalty. And it's one of those things that uh, I, I just seen too many horror stories of people who didn't understand their loan documents when they see, when they signed them. And one of the, the pieces to remember for your listeners is when you get a car loan, when you get a credit card, when you buy a residential mortgage, all the laws are in your favor. You There's disclosures, there's understanding, there's cooling off periods. When you do something for investment purposes, none of the laws are in your favor. The law is assuming this is a business transaction and you understand and get know what you're getting into. So the lender has great flexibility to do what they want, how they want, and you have to understand that and be able to negotiate it because you don't have those consumer protections that you have that you do with other products that maybe you've used in the past. Yeah. What kind of investment loans do you guys provide? Sure. Um, we work with, from the simplest of simple of one to four family residential properties. And many people that we work with, 
Uh, maybe they have a full-time job or they're, they're a real estate professional such as yours. And, and this is more supplemental income or it's a retirement plan. Uh, we deal with, or maybe it's just student housing and you're located near a college. One of the most common loans that we do is, is a mixed use commercial property where maybe there's a small storefront uh, on the bottom and a few apartments up top uh, where you do have that stable residential income and you can get a little bit more on the business side. Up to, we do, we, we do uh, apartment units with hundreds of units. We do, we, we do hotels and hospitality loans. Uh, we'll do commercial real estate office buildings. Uh, and and a, another chunk of our business is with the small business owner who's purchasing the real estate that they're in. So, and even getting into, if you're a business owner, as you expand, you know, you may be a real estate investor, but eventually you become a business owner. And if you need working capital loans, SBA loans, lines of credit, we, we do the whole gamut. Okay. That's good to know too. So basically like you could be a one-stop shop where you're starting off investing with the one to four and later you upgrade to a five to 10 plus unit and you guys still can still handle, handle loans and you get the relationship over time. Yeah. And, and, and credit, we're, we're credit unions are cooperative business. And, but one part of being a cooperative business is they also work together. So we re, what we what we do in practice is those 85 credit unions that we work together with, we pull their resources together to expand their lending capabilities. Uh, so, you know, a, a credit union might only be a few hundred million dollars. And, you know, if you're a five hundred million dollar credit union that you may have a, a maximum lending capability of two, three million dollars. Well, you're in San Francisco. Uh, what does two, three million dollars buy you these days? <laughs> Particularly <laughs> if it's a commercial property. Yeah, not much. Uh, not much. So your lenders are going to have to pull together on the back end. And that's a big function of what we do is getting people access to this credit union money, but bringing them together. So with the, the lending power of the, our credit unions is much bigger than they are individually. Nice. And is there like a difference for a consumer standpoint? Is there a difference when I go to a credit union versus a bank and I do application and I submit my forms? Are you guys asking anything differently or just because I'm, I become a member once I get the loan or if I'm already a pre-existing member? For that first loan with people, what, what I like to tell you is the financial side is almost identical. Uh, we're going to be pulling credit. We're going to be getting the same tax returns. We're going to be uh, doing a lot of forms. You're going to say, you know, I submitted this to the bank. It's almost identical. So that's the financial side of your process is going to be very similar. Where I think the differentiator is, is in the, 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 quanti the, the qua uh, qualitative side where we're asking the questions to try to make a deal work or talking through the process versus just putting it in the meat grinder and it either comes out with an approved or decline because it fits a box or not. So, so we really try to, especially for those first deal or two, because we want to understand who you are and what you're doing, but more importantly, where you're going to make sure it's a good fit for us and it's a good fit for you. 
And if there's any issues that we have to work around, let's talk through them to try to make it work. But, you know, so, sometimes financial analysis is financial analysis, regardless of what lender you're going to. Uh, some of that is, is, is the same in universal. Uh, and, and then it, it, it's always, I always tell people that first loan uh, may seem like you're, it's, you're pulling teeth a little bit, but as you move forward, uh, it gets a little easier. And a question sometimes we ask is if the person got um, a pre-approval in a, a rate on, let's say a rate, and that rate was better than your rates for the same date, for the same everything, would you guys match them or beat them? We, we can talk to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, I always look at it as the total picture because uh, in our world, under the commercial side, a rate is one piece of it. We want to know what the origination fees are, what the prepayment penalties are, how interest is calculated, and what other terms and conditions do they have with the loan? Because unlike a more, uh, your traditional owner-occupied mortgage that you get, there are so many variables when lining up competing offers. But we do have conversations with people to, uh, you know, it, it we, we want to offer the best total package in the total picture and not just simply wave rate around as the cheapest of the cheap, because at some point, you know, money costs the same for, for most people and, and maybe in certain lenders, it costs more. So if you're going to compete, be try to be the cheapest on the rate, as you mentioned before, they have to make it up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a good point to that is really to understand the back end of things. So when you look at the rate, only the rate, then you're missing the rest of the pieces that you just mentioned. You got to make sure everything else is the same to be fair. And I see that sometimes. I see some lenders actually match it or beat it based on the exact apples for actual apples. Some people say, oh, I give you a better rate. But when you look at it, it was not a better rate. Everything else behind the scene was totally way worse. Uh, so then I want consumers to understand that. It's just not about rate. It's about everything combined. Um, another part of it too, you mentioned for investors, am I able to do an Airbnb property, a fix and flip property, a you know total rehabs, and can I get 100% loans? Yeah, we usually, um, we're, we're usually looking for uh, some equity in the loans. Mm-hmm. If it's a, if it's a real, uh, uh, if it's a real gut job renovation and maybe some rough around the ed- edges, that's where I always tell people sometimes you're better off going to that hard money loan. Uh, if you want a hundred percent and going to renovate it and it's going to be something at the end. Um, that's where I see us going into uh, the properties more where uh, you're going to, to, to renovate and, and getting those. And then we're lending off a stabilized value. Um, we, but we do do Airbnb short-term rentals, uh, pretty pretty regularly in the in the different areas. Um, one of the things to remember when for people who are doing short term rentals is sometimes they get excited off of the the income on that because as you know you can make a lot more money on a short term rental uh, than you can uh, you know renting a uh, property out to a family for twelve months. Um, and, and that's part of the beast. But really, in the valuation side, if that property, you sold that property and somebody moved in, you know, the value isn't necessarily off of that rental income, because we almost look at that rental income more as a small business unto itself. 
that you're operating and moving. Uh, so we're, we're going to look at that, comparing it to a stabilized rental property versus a short-term rental where you can make many, many times more, but you're not going to get all of that valuation in your appraisal. And that's kind of a standard for, that's really a standard in the appraisal industry. Yeah. And um, another question they had to, so actually going back, you're, you're able to do fix and flips as well. Like Airbnb, we can do that. You can do that. Yep. Uh, fix and flips, not hundred percent down, but as long as you have some equity in it and yep. maybe it's, as long as it's probably habitable for appraisal wise, it has to be habitable enough. Then you can do a fix and flip too, right? Yeah. And, and one of the things that we'll also have that conversation about you is we want to understand how you're going to do that. And I like to use myself in as an example. I can barely fix my toilet when it leaks. And I, I'm horrible at taking care of cars and I'm lousy at fixing things around the house. If I do a renovation project, you would not want to live in this house and you probably wouldn't want to lean against any of the stairs because they would fall over. Yeah. So we want to understand, are you a contractor who's going to do this and, and you really just need to buy the material and you have the resources to get this done? Or are you just simply going to outsource everything to your local contractor? It, it sounds, and if you're going to outsource everything, uh, can, can you get the fit in today's market? Can you get the fixtures to fix them? Uh, can you get the washers you want and the tile you need and everything? So we want to understand that process to make sure you're not getting in over your head. Because one thing to remember about your lender is we want to get our money back. <laughs> and we also see a lot of situations. So if, if we're asking questions and seeing other type situations where uh, we want, if, if we think your, your numbers are way off, we're going to tell you that and, and take that as good advice, not because we, we don't want to lend the money, but we want to get the money back. And we've seen this before. And we can also tell you what's going on in the marketplace around you. And have, we have access to information that you may not have on an individual basis for you. And that's a good point too. I always tell um, investors is it's nice to have a second pair of eyes, even even a third pair, even from hard money lenders, uh, credit unions, banks, because you want to make sure what they're seeing and what you're seeing, and to make sure it aligns with being able to be profitable. Because sometimes you might not see, hey, this property is actually not that great. Here's the issues we see. Here's the number you tell us, but here's the numbers we think it is based on our projections of all the other loans we see in this exact area. Consider these, and it might be good or bad. And that, that helps to have another pair of eyes looking at your deal. Particularly if the, the more, the bigger marketplace you're going into. Uh, in today's world, it used to be everybody bought property in their neighborhood because they knew it and they knew what was going on. Now, a lot of investors uh, you know, you can do the Google me right and look for properties and find properties in different areas and buying in different marketplaces or just farther away from you. Uh, you know, from where you're at, if you drove an hour, you could be in three or four different marketplaces away where you might not understand the rental income as much as you think you do. Um, or you might not have con your, your contracting team and your main uh, you people who you're going to rely on might not go there. So, so you got to make sure 
you know, take that feedback that we give you on, on a good basis so that uh, we want this property to succeed. And what kind of timelines do you see for credit unions? You know how, like, for example, when I talk about timelines in a purchase agreement, there's going to be an appraisal timeline, a loan contingency timeline, and a close of escrow. What do you normally see in credit unions? Yeah, and our, we, we can get you uh, the, a we're, we're going to be able to get you very fast no's. Um, that's why I'm really like, if we can't do this deal, we're not going to drag it out. We're just going to say it doesn't fit. And here's why we can't do it. And this is what we see. Uh, tell it. And, and most of the time, we're not just giving you a no. We're trying to talk through it to see if we're missing something. Many times under the residential investment side, uh, or even the commercial investment side. Now that's going to be longer than your primary mortgage. Uh, you know the, the the approvals for primary mortgages they're they're pretty heavily regulated. If it meets this, boom, it works, and it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, usually if you can get an, a preliminary approval in a couple days and a final approval in seven to ten days in the investment side, that's pretty good. Um, some people, you, if, if it's somebody you worked with before, it should be less. Um, the the big X factors that we find today are the service, the the other inspections that may need. Uh, and and for example, if you're doing uh, it, this, may be your first commercial property where, where there's a business involved. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna, most lenders are gonna want to do some basic environmental due diligence behind it. And that could be an extended period of time. The toughest market estimator today is appraisals. Um, we, we, we need more appraisers in this world. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the X factor of getting appraisers who, and not just appraisers, appraisers who know that marketplace and can put it together in a timely basis is something that we, we always say we work much faster than the appraisers. So those are those are the pieces today that, that worry me the most uh, in, in getting all of the service providers uh, up to speed and getting those in a, in a timely manner. Any general timelines on appraisal appraisal dates? Like how many days do you guys need to generally get appraisal back? Uh, we, we've seen two weeks and we've seen two months. So it, it, and it really depends on the, the type of property that it is and the types of valuations that you're looking for. If, uh, you know, if, if this is your, if it's simply a residential property deal, we're using it on standard industry forms. If your property has a commercial component to it where it's not considered residential, uh, that's where they're giving you more of an appraisal that looks like a book. And, uh, and those, you, there, there's less of those appraisers than there are residential appraisers. And many times they're very busy. So, but we, we generally good rough is, uh, is three to four weeks in today's marketplace. But okay. if you have a, if you have that commercial component, you really need to think about maybe some other factors that are out there as well. Um, like environmental and leases, if there's tenants in it now, getting everything transferred uh, and, and doing those in a timely basis. You know, investment properties can sometimes take much, much longer than a residential property. 
And that's one of the big changes that we're seeing in today's marketplace with people getting burned because deals change. Uh, and I don't know if anybody has mentioned this, but rates are rising. <laughs> so, so the loan that it, it, you, you may have done a loan and projected uh, interest rates and profitability. Well, a couple months later, those interest rates may be uh, significantly higher. So did you lock in at the time or is your lender floating this a little bit more towards closing? And, you know, it's not just your house where you, you're paying a little bit more in your mortgage payment each month. You, you have to be able to make sure that you can carry this through and the deal still makes sense uh, through, with tenants. And you're going to have that income that you can, uh, you can work with. Because, you know, the, the margins on these properties are thin. Uh, it, when we look at the, how much income in compared to the tenants uh, in, in today's world, it, it, it's a thin margin. So, yeah, it's definitely a changing market right now with the rates rising so drastically, like even for us from 3% to 6% for some people, right? And that's crazy. I think something that consumers should be aware of right now is like, make sure you look at the down payment portion and the rates. Can you do 20% down, 25% down, 30% down? The rates do change drastically from that point of view. And each each bank um, credit union has different rates based on what you're trying to do there. Uh, but I even have, even today, I've seen rates in the 425 rate with a 30% down while normally conventional 6% plus for 20% down. And if that's something you can do, take a look at the numbers, which makes the most sense for you, but that could help some people with the, if they have enough down, but in the San Francisco Bay area market, it is really hard to get a good down payment when the prices, even for a fixer starting at one, six, one, seven, right. For single family houses, even one eight. So it's tough. I get, I get it, but seeing what you can do and understanding the different variables helps appraisal alone and closing. Everyone has different timelines. I see here in the Bay area, some appraisals is 10 days up to 17 days on average. So just a mix of that for residential side, when you go to bigger investments, it's going to take a lot longer because like you mentioned, there's a shorthand of appraisers out there. There's a lot of work to be done. There's not enough appraisers. They can't get it done fast enough. Everyone wants it done tomorrow not possible but you have to understand what the general timeline is for today and if you're pre-proofed today you should double check it again to make sure are you still pre-proofed because the rates have been going up so quickly so we all we always talk about and you hear the stories of 1982 and uh i got a mortgage for 13 or 15 or 16 percent and we thought we got a great deal but and the housing market survived and everybody was making loans at the these rates that were but the biggest difference between the, the, the 1980s and today is the valuations of the homes and the, the payments compared to people's income is significantly more. You know, on those, uh, most of the times, you know, they might have had a $30,000, $50,000 home, uh, even in San Francisco back in the day. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she were paying interest on it but it was still a relatively smaller percentage of your income. Whereas today uh, that, that larger payment is significantly a higher percentage of your income. And, uh, and, and hopefully there, there's a slowdown, you know, nobody wants to see inflation. I understand why rates are raising, rising. Uh, it has to, we got to uh, do something about inflation, 
because uh, we're paying for it one way or another. But uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see this market over uh, evolve uh, because many investors and, and even borrowers, they've never been in a rising rate environment. Uh, they, they didn't, they weren't alive during an environment like this. So they have existed in the past and, and we'll get through it, but, but we'll see. So let's talk about that too. Like, you know, based on just your experience and your, in your opinion, like, um, the rates have jumped so quickly from 3% to 6%. And we talk about inflation and the rates changing so quickly. What do you think is going to happen for the rest of 2022 and even 2023 right now? We think, uh, all our projections are hard rate right raises through the remainder of this year. How much higher and, do you think? Uh, we, we think that we think the prime rate will settle in between four to four and a half percent, probably four, four and a quarter. Um, so, so, so you're really talking about a 4% rise in rates this year uh, overall, where, where those rates may be, those mortgage rates may be in the mid sixes uh, and start to level out. And, and, and really, from, from our economic standpoint, what we, think is that's, what we think that's going to do is skyrocket the, the potential and the opportunities in the multifamily and the residential investment properties. Why is we, that? We re- well, people need a place to live. Mm-hmm. And if they have a job and they're employed... They're spending more, you know, that one of that first bills that they're going to pay are the rent, their rent each month. So, and, and, and one thing also to keep, keep in mind is the, the, the tax law changes um, put in under the Trump administration, they really negated the benefit of home ownership. Where many, many times, uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, own a home, you're going to write off all the taxes. You're going to write off the interest, and there's a big benefit to that. In, in in particularly in San Francisco, in New York City, even in the suburbs when I'm at where I'm at, my state and local taxes don't get written off. My real estate taxes don't get written off. So, it, when people do the math. You can you can uh, the the net effect of renting versus buying, uh, it isn't as dramatic as it once was under the previous tax code. Mm-hmm. And the the other pieces that we're seeing is a tremendous uh, shift in in, in in the work from home culture, where people uh, you know people are can can move out. Uh, if, if you talk to uh, somebody who, who uh, is in Salt Lake City or Boise, Idaho, they see, we see a lot of California license plates. So people go, they're going to rent. Uh, now, now, it takes a long time for rental properties to come onto the marketplace. So the pandemic really squashed a lot of those plans. And the cost have squashed a lot of those plans. And people, with the increase in labor, with the increase in, uh, with the increase of cost of goods, people aren't building all of those rental properties that they have. So when you have it on your on your hands, you can really get a good premium. Now there's a cap to that, and I think we're going to find out pretty soon what that cap is. 
because eventually people just say, I can't rent and, you know, I can't pay anymore. So, but unemployment is very low, which is, which is a positive. And even if unemployment goes to four and a half, five percent, that is still historically low. So we see people with jobs. We see people uh, spending goods. We see people traveling. Last week we were in Orlando, Florida, and I can tell you it's really busy <laughs> uh, if, you, if you're going out. So, so, so we, we see if you're an investor, jobs and income are that key for, for your ultimate cash flow. And even with the higher cost of goods, people are going to be paying their rent. They're going to be finding a place to live. If they, you know, I, I am sure that you have neighborhoods that you know where people have been priced out of. Well, they're moving somewhere. So they, and they might not be buying, they, they could still be renting, but they're going somewhere, whether it's in your local marketplace or they're working from home. Um, we've really switched to a virtual work from home company and we've had people move. Um, so, so we see that as, as, a, as a shift that, that isn't going away. And it's going to take a few years for this whole marketplace to level out in terms of real estate uh, supply and demand. I think one part right now, like in my market, I see like, you know, sellers are still expecting high price premiums for their houses right now, even even though they understand the rate has changed drastically and the purchasing power went down, the multiple offers went down, but they sellers still want that high price like it was six months ago. Um, and we tell them, you know, things are changing is it's going to get a lot harder. And, you know, imagine your mortgage going up a couple thousand dollars just because the rate went up and your price point at 1.82 million plus is going to affect a lot of people. But even then too, like, you know, with inflation going on and you see the prices for milk, for oil, for gas, everything is so crazy. Like gas here right now, it's like for premiums, like 665, it went up to 695. And like, people are like, that's insane. Cause you know how much you spend per week hitting like uh, probably over $500, $600 a month, just in that alone. Like everyone's posting pictures of $100, $120 gas per week, right? On their, um, you know, social media. But that hurts. I um, the work from home helps a lot too. Some people being able to work from home. But what we see right now in the tech market is a lot of tech companies are doing a lot of layoffs, but I would say they're more turning over the fat and really trying to hone down on their ex expenditures so they can really you know stabilize themselves for the future of in the risks coming in right now. Yeah, and, and I really see that. And, and when I see the some of the layoffs in the tech business, um, as somebody who's not in the tech business, I look at that and say, oh, they were probably a little bit overbought anyway. They got mm -hmm. capital and were higher, 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 and, mm -hmm. and it's getting. Now, Now here's the good news compared to 2008, 2009. Those people will get jobs. They might not get the exact job that they have with all the cool stock options in the 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 you know, the, the room with all the snacks and every other, but they're going to be able to get jobs. Some of it might not be jobs in that marketplace uh, that, or they might go to a new marketplace, but they're also the net that they can put out and work from home. They could work for a company from New York. Uh, they can, whereas you couldn't do that in the past. Um, we find that pe people always ask about our hiring practices 
And they say, what's it like hiring people? I said, it's not a problem because we'll hire somebody wherever they live. And if you're able to, if you now, now that's not everybody. If you're, uh, you know, if you're a welder, you got to be in the factory welding where you are. Um, but in the service center tech industry, which, which really dominates, you know, the, the major metropolitan marketplaces, the good news is you have flexibility. You can go to, you can work for a company in Austin, Texas, and then maybe you could move there, but you don't have to right away. So, so we're, th- this, is, there, this is an oversupply uh the issues that we're having. It's not a, when, when we have demand problems and, and that's where, that's where I'm much more worried. Uh, you know, if, if people weren't buying milk, then we have problems. People are trying to buy cars and they can't have problems. And I think we're getting softer and, and, and I don't think you're going to see deflation. Uh, you know, hopefully gas isn't $7 a gallon forever. <laughs> but I think you'll see, you know, people, a lot of people received some pretty good raises over the past two years and income went up and expenses have gone out. And I think we're going to see that softening to higher prices, but closer to where supply equals demand, where you can afford to buy bacon and eggs uh, and, 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 uh, and do things like that, that you knew normal. And it's going to be higher than, you know, you're going to look and say, remember 2019 when this cost uh, $3 and now it's $5? Well, you're still buying it, but you're making a little bit more and it stings, but it'll all even out. So what do you think for 2023 and 24 is going to happen right now? Just a guess. Yeah. um, My crystal ball says we're going to, I, I don't think there's going to be large economic growth. Uh, but I think we'll be into stable economic growth. Um, the the world events and macro events play somewhat. Um, I do, you know, in, in in the Silicon Valley, San Francisco world, I think uh, lending into the the investments in companies uh, based off of a piece of paper with large valuations, I, I think those are going to soften. So. You're going to have people focusing more on cash flow and profitability versus I want to take this company public in a few years. I think, but I but I do think what rates will stay in that where prime is in the three and a half to four percent range, and it's going to take a few years for supply and demand to burn off. Um, also, remember there's a lot of government money out there that has been allocated, but not spent. So there's still a lot of stimulus money being put into the marketplace that has to work its way through. So, you know, macro events can, can happen in a shift, you know, can, can move things in an economy. But I, I, I think once we get done raising rates this year, that's where you're going to see the rates. Um, I don't think we're going to see massive run-ups in the stock markets and investments and assets. You know, we're, we're not going to see NFT uh, and crypto uh, millionaires and billionaires because they invested in, uh, you know, goofy collectibles and, uh, and and now flipping them for huge money. I think though, I think you're going to see a little bit smarter money into into the economy. 
Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think too, like nowadays, like you know, be really watchful of your expenses, what you're doing, and focus on growing your incomes and building more passive income streams, multiple channels, so you can really sustain. But try to sustain throughout. And the prices for housing, I think it will slowly come down a little bit, not a lot, depending on which market you're in. Like the San Francisco Bay Area, I don't think it's gonna drop a lot. It'll drop a little bit because there's still a lot of people out there who make really good money, and the rates do affect them a little bit, but it's not going to affect them forever. And they know too in the future that this rate is only temporary. It's going to go back down, hopefully sometime in a couple of years that they can refinance back out of it to a lower rate, but they got the house they want it to be in. So that's a part of it. And it's a challenge because if you're an investor, you're always looking for cash flow and equity positions. So really try to find out which is the best market for you that can grow even during this time period. There are growing markets still. And if that makes sense, that might have a better number out of state, maybe out of your area, maybe, and take a look at it and figure that out. But um, one of the things that we're seeing is a flattening of the marketplace between <laughs> cities, suburbs, and smaller cities and small towns. That never happened before. And some of it is that work from home, COVID leftover shift of people being able to move more of a mobile society. So that's going to be an interesting phenomenon over the next few years, too. Yeah, that will definitely change the playing field because now if you can work from anywhere and the company you work for is open to paying you a certain rate based on your location and it makes sense, then more people can move further out to be somewhere nice, warm, bigger, maybe, and cheaper than that rate, the rents will slowly rise over there while our higher areas will slowly come down a little bit more as people exit certain areas. Absolutely. That's exactly what we think is, uh, is happening and will continue to happen. Cool. So any final thoughts about why people should go to credit unions, consider credit unions, learn more about credit unions, investors, and like, you know, final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Th it, it really, you know, if, if you enjoy community banking, if you value that relationship with your lender, credit unions are a good play. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, this is about trust and it's about being able to deliver. And credit unions are a good solution for that. It's why I'm in this business. Uh, what we do for people is, you know, we deal with many, many markets. And but if we aren't in a market, uh, that, that we have a direct lender, we introduce them to a credit union in that marketplace who lends uh, in, the, in the types of property that they're looking for. So, uh, you know, if people reach out to us, even if we, we can't help you directly, we always like to try to give you some advice and match you up with somebody locally who can. Nice. And how did they reach out to you guys? Sure. The easiest way is uh, we have a couple different sites, but the easiest one is just contact my site, Mark Ritter, M-A-R-K. R-I-T-T-E-R.com. And uh, you can put your information in there. We're also very active on LinkedIn uh, through my personal page and through our company. So Nice. All right. So thank you guys so much for being on the Truth About Real Estate podcast. If you want to learn more about Mark Ritter, about credit unions, be sure to reach out to Mark and ask him anything about it and see if he can connect you with a local credit union or refer you to a credit union in your area. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for being on our show. And everyone, we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a great day.